Christie. And uh, children, you guys can head out to children's ministry. And uh, you've got good stuff for you there. We have been working our way through the book of Exodus, uh, which has been rich, and I hope you have found it fruitful in your own heart. It's been fruitful for me as I study it, Um, but we're going to take a a break, and uh, we're going to spend some time in Philippians over the next few weeks, and so that's where we're going to spend our time this morning, and and I think that the question to just kind of grab our hearts this morning is, what's your life about? Where are you going? How are you, how are you going to get there? What are the things that are important to you? What guides your decisions, dictates how you spend your, your time and your money? What occupies your thoughts? What's, what's your life about? Where are you going? And how are you going to get there? It's so easy, I think, in our world today to get just caught up in the right now and the things that are apparently urgent begin to push out the things that ought to be important. And and we find ourselves just kind of existing day to to day, just one day to the next, and never stopping to ask what, what guides us, never really pursuing anything on a larger scale other than working for the weekend or maybe the next vacation or perhaps retirement as the as the grand end goal. What's your life about? Where are you going? How are you going to get there? As we jump into the book of Philippians, um, Philippians is often heralded as the epistle of joy. And that is certainly there. But I don't think that's the heart of it. As as I studied this and and Josh and and David McPhee helped me kind of dig in through this and and begin to see more clearly, uh, I don't think that's the main point of the book. I think it's one of the key things that this book should produce in us. Our book also talks about unity in the church, about living with this eternal perspective, uh, about growing and making progress in the faith. But none of those are the main focus of the book. They're all things that this book ought to produce in us. The main point, the main thrust of this little letter from, from greeting to farewell is that the true Christian, the true church, lives with gospel focus. It's right at the center of it. And we're asked, what is your life about? What guides your decisions? What what dictates how you spend your time and your money? What occupies your thoughts? That is to ask, what defines you as a person? The answer ought to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're about. Following Jesus is not a hobby. It's not a weekend event. It's not even a daily thing. It's an all-encompassing, life-permeating gospel focus. What comes to the church? Who we are as the, as the church gathered? What do we do? What are we about? The, the gospel isn't just the, the door we enter through to get into the church. The gospel isn't just the message that we have for those outside the church. The gospel is the, is the air we breathe. It's the, it's the food that we eat. It's our lifeblood. It's our strength and our song. The gospel is what unites us and defines us and mobilizes us and empowers us. And so over the next month and, and through until the end of June, what we're going to do is kind of spend some time in, in Philippians. We're going to spend the next five weeks just looking at chapter one of Philippians. And we're going to head back to Exodus for a little while. And we're just going to flip back and forth 
and, and work our way through these until the end of June. And our time in Philippians is going to be spent asking this question, what does that mean? What does it mean to live with gospel focus? What is this little letter all about? And we're going to look this morning just at the first two verses. Uh, Paul's introduction to the letter. Um, turn with me there, if you would, in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible on you, just ask you to put your hand up and one of our ushers will get you a Bible. We want you to have God's Word in your hand. Uh, you probably heard it last week. You'll hear it again next week. I have nothing to say. Sorry. Um, no wisdom here. All I have is this book, and this book is enough, and we believe that. And so I want you to be able to look down and see God's word in front of you, and that you would walk away from here not saying, well, that's what John thinks, but I see what God's word has for me. I see what God's word says. Um, let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we come before you this morning in desperate need. We need you. We need to know your gospel more. Lord, would you be at work? Would you send your spirit now to open our eyes, to work in our hearts, that we might see your truth clearly? God, that we may not only know it, but be transformed by it. And that in knowing your word, we would come to know you more. God, that you would be glorified, that you would be shaping and molding a people even now who live radically with this gospel focus. Lord, would you be at work, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this little introduction, we see that Paul understands the importance of first impressions. We often read these introductions um, so simply. We, we maybe skim over them. This is just kind of a formal thing, right? Uh, and it is, in some ways, this is a typical formal introduction. This is the way ancient letters were written. We, we sign our name at the end of a letter. They started with it. I think they got it right. That makes more sense. Um, you know who it's coming from right off the bat. Um, he introduces himself, and then he addresses his readers. He gives them this kind of blessing or well-wish, and then he moves into the body of what he has to say. So this is a formal letter opening, but it's not just that. Paul doesn't waste ink, or the Holy Spirit through Paul doesn't waste ink. Um, even in this little introduction, he's, he's teeing things up. He's laying a groundwork and setting a tone moving forward. So let's take a closer look at these two verses, this letter to the Philippians, and we're going to see this amazing compact overview of what it means to live with gospel focus. So let me read this little passage for us, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to stop first at just how Paul introduces himself. Why does he use these words? Right off the bat, uh, I think he's calling us to look to gospel authority. Look to gospel authority. Paul's the one writing this letter, and Timothy is with him. It's possible Timothy was um, the scribe for him. He's dictating, and Timothy's writing. We know he does that in other places. It's not apparent here for sure. Uh, but I think he specifically mentions Timothy uh, because in the book of Acts, we see that 
that when Paul was there in Philippi, just beginning the church, Timothy was along with him. And so they know Timothy. And he's about to send them Timothy. If we look down at chapter 2, verse 19, he hopes to send Timothy to visit them soon. They know him. They, they love Timothy. And you'll see this as the letter goes on. This is a very personal letter. This is a very um, intimate letter. Paul loves this church. He loves these people. He knows them and cares about them, and they, they know him and care about him in return. But it's interesting then how he describes himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. So Paul writes 13 letters in the New Testament. Nine of them, he introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus. One time, he, he blends the two. He says a, a servant and an apostle. But this is the only time that he simply calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus. So why? Why is it different here? What's his point? And again, I think he's driving this, calling us, look to gospel authority. He is an apostle. That's, that's not up for debate, and that's a, a significant statement. Um, he makes that very clear in other places, that, that he was personally sent by the risen Jesus, right? So Jesus, risen in the flesh, said to Paul and to the other 12, you are my official ambassadors to start the church. They are the, the foundation of the church as apostles. That's not a small thing. We don't have apostles anymore today. And as an apostle, Paul speaks with absolute authority. The church in Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians 14, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am saying, the things that I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Ouch. But Paul says, you think you're spiritual? You, you want to call yourself a prophet? Um, you better agree with Paul. If you disagree with Paul, you're neither. You are neither spiritual nor prophetic. Um, the words of Paul are the litmus test of truth. This is, the, this is the commands of Jesus. Peter, the Peter, the leader of the, the 12 disciples, one of Jesus' closest inner circle, um, he writes this in, in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, Just as our beloved brother Paul, who wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, Notice he doesn't write according to his own wisdom. He writes according to the wisdom given him, that is by God. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Boy, it's good to know Peter was like us. <laughs> you ever read in Paul and you're like, there's things in here that are hard to understand. Yeah, Peter's with you. But listen to this. Which ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Wow. Peter says that those who are messing with the writings of Paul, they're ignorant and unstable, and they do it to Paul just like they do the other scriptures. The other scriptures. Paul is, or Peter is aware that Paul, as an apostle like himself, is writing scripture. There's no doubt in his mind. This is God's word. So if Paul had that kind of authority. Why does he not wield it here? Partly, I think, he doesn't feel the need to. In Philippi, his apostleship is not questioned. His authority is not up for debate. But, but he's not giving up that authority by any means. 
think about this. He's saying, I'm writing this as a servant of Christ Jesus. We're here on his behalf as a servant of the king. And, and so if a servant of the king shows up at your house and says, hello, I'm a servant of the king. You owe taxes and you ignore that servant. Um, you've not only ignored the servant, you've ignored the king. A good servant speaks with all of the authority of the, of the king. That's one of the points that Paul is making. He's saying, this letter isn't from us. This is a letter from Jesus. This is a letter on his authority. I'm just the messenger here. I'm just the, the tool. This is, this is the words of Jesus Christ to you. People try to draw a line between the writings of Jesus and the writings of Paul. Right? Those, those red letters, those are the really important letters. Get those letters, but the rest of them, you know, those are kind of secondary. And frankly, Paul says some things that I don't like, so I don't think he's right all the time. The Bible won't have it. Won't have it at all. Paul is telling the Philippians, this letter comes from me, but only as a servant of Jesus Christ, as a message from the king himself. Peter would stand up and say, no, 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 it is the, it is the unstable who twist Paul's words. Don't fight with Paul. He's a He's writing scripture. Do we approach the Bible that way? We don't, we don't stand on equal ground with the Bible. We don't read God's word and then say, I don't know if I agree with that. I'm not sure about that. No, we, we submit to God's word. It judges us. We don't judge it. We don't stand above it and say, I'll take this piece and that piece, but I don't like that piece. As you're reading the Bible, being careful to, to understand it properly, to understand it in, in context. It's one thing if you're getting it wrong or misunderstanding it, but as you're understanding it correctly and you find something that you disagree with, you don't get to change the Bible. The Bible changes you. We ought to be able to say, I have never read a single thing in this book that I disagree with, at least not for more than about four seconds. Because the moment I disagree, I realize I'm wrong. And I'm going to conform myself, submit myself to God's word. I think that's primary reason that Paul is introducing himself this way. He's saying, submit to God's word. And then he goes beyond that. In using this particular analogy, in using this language of, of servant, he's showing that he himself and Timothy come as examples of that kind of submission. I'm not asking you to do something that I'm not doing. In fact, let me show you the beauty of this kind of submission. As I live it out in front of you, Timothy and I write this as servants of Christ Jesus. And actually the word here behind servant, you probably even have a footnote in your Bible. The Greek word is doulos. And, and technically the best translation is slave and Often translators go for servants because slave has so much negative baggage. Those of us who've been walking through Exodus, I hope your ideas on, on kind of the Israel, uh, Judaic understanding of slavery has changed some. But they're saying we're slaves of Jesus. He owns us. That's a vivid picture of, of how Paul understands our relationship to Christ. He explained this to the, the church in Corinth. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.20, he says, you were bought with a price, so honor God with your body. Why do you obey 
God? Because Christ bought you. He paid a price for you. The implication is he, he owns you. You're his. If you understand this, this is what makes it a, a gospel authority. It, it comes right out of the heart of the gospel. Your sin, our, our disobedience to God, our rebellion against him put us in debt to God's justice. The wages of sin is death. You owe God an eternity in hell for the, for the consequence of, of our sin, our rebellion against him. And if you're a Christian, it means he has redeemed you. He's purchased you. That's language right out of the slave market. He bought you out from under that penalty of sin. He paid the price that you owed on your behalf and said, now this one is mine. And he will live. So we belong to him. Titus 2.14 says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us, to, to purchase us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's what God is doing in, in building the church. He's purchasing a people purified for himself to be sent out in holiness. That's what it means to be a Christian. Bought out from lawlessness. Bought out from sin and the condemnation of sin and the wrath of God that we deserve to be God's possession. And to do his will, to obey him, to submit to his authority because he owns us. We should be looking for that authority that comes right out of the heart of the gospel. The fact that we're saved means we, we live then as servants, slaves, joyful slaves. And we, again, we hear that word slave and we think it's like whippings and drudgery. That's not the picture here. It's this, it's this willing, joyful slave who says, no, I, I love my master. I give myself to him. I, he, he's, he's my Lord and, and I'm his. And look at just the way that Paul defines himself, right? This is a key moment for Paul to, again, set the tone and say, this is who I am. He writes as Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. How many different ways could he have defined himself here? I mean, I think nobody would have questioned if he said, I Paul, the, the founder of the church in Philippi, that would have made sense. That would have been pretty pertinent here. Or maybe, looking at his life circumstance, Paul, a prisoner of Caesar in Rome, that's a pretty big deal. That seems noteworthy at this point. But that's not what's primary on his mind. As he looks at his life and asks, what, what defines me? It's not those things. It's that he's a servant of Jesus Christ. Founding the church and being in prison, that's, that's just part of his service to Jesus Christ. Acts 20, 24. I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish the course, the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the grace of God. I just want to serve him. That's all that matters. This goes back to that opening question, who are you? Where are you going? How, how are you going to get there? What's your life about? You a welder, a plumber, a teacher, a builder, a stay-at-home mom? Maybe a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a son, a daughter? Or are you a servant of Jesus Christ? And all of those other things are secondary. They're, they're the next level down. 
Some of them are very important, but, but they're just arenas where my calling as a servant to Jesus is, is lived out. They're an opportunity for me to serve Christ in these different spheres. Decisions like what kind of job you take. What do I do with my money? How do I operate as a husband or wife? What does it mean to live as a husband or wife? How do I operate as a parent in raising children? How do I live as a child under parents? What I watch, how I speak, how I live, all of that just falls underneath this idea of looking to gospel authority. Living as a servant of Jesus as defined by God's word and and seen in this example of Paul and Timothy. Living with gospel focus means looking to gospel authority. As a servant of Christ Jesus, let that be the defining feature of your life. But then Paul says, live in gospel identity. Pushes this just a little further. Look at how Paul addresses his readers. Second piece of verse 1 there, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Side reference here, the overseers and deacons. Those of you who know me, have been around here, that's a topic I love to dig into. Um, overseers is a word that's interchangeable with elder and pastor. It's the same thing. And, and that's how the early church was organized. It, it was elders Pastors who, who oversaw the, the spiritual need of the church were the shepherds, the spiritual leaders, and beneath them were the deacons who took care of kind of the more practical things. I think Acts 6 is an early example of how that worked out. As they said, as the apostles say, we need to give ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer, and, and they appoint other men to worry about kind of distribution of bread. Um, that's the church. And that's how the church functions in the New Testament. And, uh, and I'm going to have to show some restraint here and just leave that there. And if you want to come dig into that more, you've got to come to Redemption Life and, and we'll spend some time showing this is why our church operates this way. Because I don't think church leadership is a question we get to talk about. We, we submit to gospel authority on that. But I don't think that's the main point here. The main point here is Paul is emphasizing, he's addressing all the saints. Well, how many saints are in this church? St. Peter, St. James, St. Andrew, St. Thomas? Like This must have been a powerhouse church that he's addressing all the saints in Philippi. That's impressive. Well, let's get acquainted with the people in this church a little bit. Um, turn with me, if you would, to Acts 16. And we'll see the, the founding of this church. Um, while we're turning there... Um, Put that map up behind us. I didn't bookmark Acts 16, so there we go. Um, so this is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. Um, he began in, in Jerusalem, that first circle. He worked his way up to Antioch. At Antioch, he picks up Silas, who's going with him, and he heads into Asia Minor. Um, he comes through Tarsus and maybe a little more squiggly line there in the bottom of Asia Minor. He stops in at all the churches that he planted on his first journey, strengthening them, encouraging them. And, and then in a, a town called Derby, he picks up a young man named Timothy who, who joins them and follows along. They're wandering up through the top of Asia Minor there somewhere. And by a dream, God sends them over to Macedonia. And so they 
sail across, and we pick up Acts 16, verse 12. Um, they sail to the district of Macedonia, and, uh, and they come to Philippi, which is called a leading city in Macedonia and a Roman colony. That's a big deal. This is an important city. Notice verse 13, on the Sabbath, they went outside the city gate and down to the river where they supposed there would be a place of prayer. Um, this tells us something about the city of Philippi. There's no synagogue there. Um, the reason there would be no synagogue is that there, would, there has to be at least 10 Jewish men to begin a synagogue. And in Philippi, it seems there's only a handful of women. They get together to pray, uh, hiding outside the gate, down by the river. Not a great start. This is not what you're looking for to begin a church. They're, they're looking for you know, godly Jewish leaders who would come to Christ and be pillars in the church, and they don't have it. They've got a, a handful of women there gathered to pray. Paul's not deterred. He preaches the gospel to them anyway, and the Lord opens the heart of a woman named Lydia, and she became the first convert in Macedonia. Thank you very much. Um, she is now the westernmost Christian in the world. And uh, ironically, um, she's from Thyatira, which is back into Asia Minor, where they came from. But she seems to be a, a rich businesswoman. Uh, verse 16, we're, we're introduced to the next addition to the church. Bit of a strange character. There's a slave girl. She's possessed by a demon, and her owners are using her to make money by fortune-telling. Not, not that demons can tell the future, but they're pretty clever, and whatever gag they have going, it's working for them. And Paul casts the demon out of her. And it's a bit of speculation, but the assumption is, having been freed from the demon, she, she joins the church there in Philippi. She becomes a believer and, and becomes the next addition to this church. And so now we have a rich businesswoman, and a once-possessed slave girl. Paul and Silas then get dragged into court by the slave girl's owners. Um, they ruined their business, and, and they're thrown into jail. And this story, I hope, heard growing up, uh, if you were fortunate, they're, they're singing hymns in the, the deepest part of the jail. In verse 26, God sends an earthquake. And the doors spring open and their chains fall off. And the, the jailer is about to kill himself. This is a, an honor-shame culture. And, and having released, letting prisoners be escape, escape under his watch, he would have been subject to the death penalty. And so as an act of honor, he's going to take his own life. Verse 28, Paul calls out, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. Obviously, he had heard Paul and Silas preaching and singing in the jail because his answer is quick and, and he has one question, what must I do to be saved? This God that you speak of, this Jesus that you speak of, he's clearly real. How can I be saved? So now we have a rich businesswoman, a once-possessed slave girl, and a blue-collar, rough-around-the-edges jailer, probably a retired soldier, and his family then joins him. With that, Paul and Silas are run out of town. That's it. See you, church. Good luck. We don't know who's added after that, but there's the beginning. There are at least some of the people that Paul's talking about as he writes to the saints at Philippi. It's kind of a hodgepodge group of people. 
And he writes to all the saints. Paul doesn't use the word saint the way we often think about it. Um, The Catholic Church talks a lot about saints, and I think that kind of has worked its way into our thinking, maybe. In the Catholic tradition, um, there's a few steps you have to go through to become a saint, an official saint. Um, It's based on a life of outstanding service to God that, that usually ends in martyrdom. Then they would look for what they call heroic virtue. And finally, if you have those first two, they look to ensure that you have performed at least two miracles. And then, long after you're dead, if you're lucky, you'll be elevated to this position of sainthood. And it's this high and lofty title. The word saint uh, translates the Greek word hagios, which just means holy. It's a big deal. Set apart to God, and yet Paul writes to all the saints who are at Philippi. He's not writing to a select few who've been martyred and performed miracles. He's writing to the whole church, to, to Lydia, to the slave girl, to the jailer, and he's saying, To you, the saints, you're the holy ones. In fact, this is one of Paul's favorite terms for believers. Paul never uses the word Christian in his writings. Um, He frequently uses the word saints. The Bible has no category for a higher status of believer. Um, Uses the word saint in the New Testament 68 times, uh, and it's always plural in its context. It's it's always plural. It's always speaking of the church, never of one specific believer in his position over and above others. The believers are the saints. They are the holy ones. John, I don't get it because I'm a believer. I trust in Jesus, but I'm no saint. My life was messy before Christ, and I've seen some work that he's done, but I have my days. I have my days that, that it's just still messy. I'm no saint. I have news for you. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. You're a saint. And and here's the best part. Your identity as a saint is not based in your performance. It's not based on the purity and perfection of your life. Look at it again. You are a saint in Christ Jesus. That's significant. It's a gospel identity. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 and think about this. Verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And half of us shudders at how ugly that list is, and the other half of us cringes because we just saw ourselves in that list. What do you do with that? And certainly, this is not a description of a saint. But Paul goes on, verse 11, And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Such were, past tense. That's what you used to be, but you are no longer. Why? What happened? Well, one of his 
titles there is you were sanctified. You know what that word is? It's the word for saint just turned into a verb. You were made holy. You were sainted. Notice you didn't do it. It happened to you. What would you have done anyway? How could you change what you were? No. It was done to you in the name of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. You're a saint in Christ. Your sinful life, all of your failures and rebellion against God, your worst days and your darkest nights of regret, gone, washed, swallowed up by the cross, and now your identity is no longer in yourself. It's a gospel identity. It's an identity in Jesus. You're a saint in Christ Jesus. This is key. Live in that gospel identity. Don't forget it. Don't don't set it aside. Own that. Live in that. Seems to me as a church today, we're we're full of like, myself included, like terrible twos Christians. I'm sure your kids went through this. Mine certainly did. Uh, A stage where it seemed like the only thing they could say was, my do it. Remember that? Oh, it was so cute the first time. They were trying to put on their little shoes. My do it. Like, oh, okay, okay. And it gets old. And then you're, you know, you're trying to drive the car or, or cook something in hot oil on the stove, and they're screaming, my do it. And you're like, no, you burn the house down. This is not okay. You can't handle this. That's us. God says, I will take your sin. I will take your shame. I'll wash it away. I will make you new and clean. I will give you this identity. I will make you a saint. And five minutes later, we say, my do it. I got this, God. I want to live on my own strength, on my own identity. Let me do it, Jesus. I will impress God. And the world is right there cheering us on. Constant message. You are enough. You can do it. You're special. Believe in yourself. You have it inside you. What does that kind of encouragement actually produce? I'll tell you what it produces. It produces frustration, exhaustion, and shame. We begin to find our identity in the things that I can do, and the things that I can do well. We begin to find our identity in our parenting. Am I raising my kids right? Am I making all the right decisions? Am I, am I uh, homeschooling and they perfectly behave and they're eating kale and quinoa for lunch? We find our identity in our job. Am I the best at what I do, climbing the corporate ladder, going in early and and staying late and upping production and and making a name for myself? We find our identity in our morality, in our religious efforts. Do I read my Bible every day? Do I have perfect church attendance? Do my prayers sound spiritual enough to the people around me? That'll impress God. We struggle and fight, and maybe we can even kind of keep up appearances for a little while. We can keep that boat afloat for a bit. And as soon as we falter, the world is right there with the same message. Here's a quote I just read this last week from a popular author. Listen to this. Anxiety happens when you think you have to figure out everything all at once. Breathe. You're strong enough 
You got this. Take it day by day. Oh, that feels nice, right? That's better. That's true, right? You got this. You're strong enough. And it's crept right into the church. I don't know if you've seen this, a very popular book for, for women right now. Girl, wash your face, Rachel Hollis. It's, it's selling like hotcakes. Supposedly Christian book. Let me read you three quotes from this book. You are meant to be the hero of your own story. You are, you and only you are ultimately responsible for who you become and how happy you are. You should be the very first of your priorities. Think about that. This is a Christian claiming to be a Christian author. Here's how you live a fulfilled life. And it sounds so good. It kind of strokes our ego a little bit. You can do it. But this message and the 10,000 ways that it's just kind of subtly shifted and, and sold again. Follow your heart. Believe in yourself. This message isn't just, isn't just other from the gospel. It's not just parallel. It's not just another track. It is absolutely contrary to the gospel. It is the exact opposite of the message of Jesus. It is at war with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't have both of these. This is the devil himself disguised as angel of light. Fighting the battle that way, repeating that mantra, I'm enough, I can do it, look inside yourself, it only leads to frustration and exhaustion and shame. Here's the secret. You don't got this. You're not strong enough. You aren't enough. You don't have it inside you. The message of Jesus is not do better. The message of Jesus is I've already done it for you. Jesus is meant to be the hero of your story. Jesus is responsible for who you become and how happy you are. Jesus should be the very first of your priorities. Don't carry that load. You can't. You know you can't. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the gospel. That's our gospel identity that Jesus has made me a saint. Jesus is enough. He has done it. So don't, don't look to what you can do. Look to what he has done done. Paul will go on to explain this more detail in his letter. Um, Philippians 3 verses 8 and 9 is just this rich passage that unpacks this very thing. Indeed, I count everything as loss. What's he talking about? All of his good deeds, all of his own efforts and strivings as loss, negative, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Notice that in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, a, a holiness, an, an acceptance, a, a completeness of my own that comes from the law, from what I do, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's huge. I let go of everything I have. 
every hope, every striving of my own, every thought that maybe I can do this, I count that as garbage so that I can have that righteousness, that holiness, that completeness in Christ by faith, by just trusting Him. This letter is written to the saints in Christ Jesus. Living with gospel focus means living in that gospel identity. I've messed up. I am messed up. I am broken and flawed, but in Christ Jesus, because what he has done, I'm a saint. I'm made holy. I'm chosen by God, accepted by him, beloved of him. Look to gospel authority. Live in that gospel identity and then grow. Grow in gospel maturity. Look at this blessing that he uses to close out his greeting. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his blessing to them, his, his well wish for them. I want good for you, but, but it's not just an empty sentiment. This is active. This is a prayer. That's how a blessing works, right? He's speaking to them, but he's pleading with God to, to do this. Grace to you from God our Father. Grace and peace. I think the concept of grace in Scripture is a little more robust than we often think about it. The standard definition of grace is God's unmerited favor, right? We've all heard that. I hope it's God's kindness to us who don't deserve it. And that's accurate, but we just apply that so narrowly. His kindness to us doesn't end at forgiving our sin, right? Grace is not just about justification, about our initial forgiveness. And that's evident right here. They are saints in Christ Jesus, but Paul is asking God to give them grace. What do they need grace for? Not, not saving grace. They clearly have that already. So why does he ask for grace to be given to them? Because God's grace not only saves, it also sanctifies. God's grace not only forgives our sin, but it's His kindness working in us, His grace in us that, that rids us of ongoing sin day after day, little by little. And it, and it produces holiness in our lives, produces obedience. In reality, these are not two separate things, right? God's grace saves us from sin start to finish. And that means forgiving my sinful past and growing me in holiness throughout the course of my life and then perfecting me at the end of my life and, and bringing me into glory. It's one seamless work of grace. You can't separate them. That's what Peter's talking about. Second Peter uh, 3.18, he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. Increase in it. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that, here's the effect of grace in them, having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God's grace is empowering them to live as servants of Christ Jesus. We grow in grace, and grace empowers obedience 
So Paul says this of himself, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. God's grace worked in him to make him what he was. And Paul did amazing things for Christ, for the, for the church, for the kingdom of God. But it wasn't Paul's work for which he can say, hey, look what I did for my glory, honor me. No, it was God's work. It was the grace of God in him and through him. So God gets the glory. Now he's saying, I want that for you. I want grace to be at work in your life, continuing this process, growing in you. I want to see you flourish in gospel maturity. I want to see more grace in your lives from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And with that grace would come peace. Peace between us, I think, is on Paul's mind. He's, he's about to plead with two of the ladies in the church to stop quarreling and fighting, be at peace with one another. Growth in grace would bring that kind of peace. But more than that, Paul's idea of peace is, is bigger than just a lack of fighting. Um, he's coming from this Hebrew idea of shalom. Includes inner peace, the transcendence all understanding, the peace of God will come to that later in this letter as well. The absence of anxiety and worry. But also wholeness, soundness, health, completeness. Are you growing in grace? And is it producing in you a life marked by, by fullness and strength and health spiritually? The absence of corrupting sinfulness that rots away at the inside and, and the presence of, of spiritual fruit through obedience. I don't get tripped up here. We are to rest in Christ. We find our identity, our assurance, our comfort in what Christ has done for us. No, we, we don't have what it takes to, to please God. That's not a weight on our shoulders. We don't have to earn a spot in His kingdom. It's not what this is about. But as saints in Christ Jesus, saved, washed, cleansed, resting in Him, part of living in that gospel identity is then to live out that gospel identity. To begin to live like what you are. By the grace of God working in you, trusting in Him. Living with gospel focus is to grow in gospel maturity. And putting off the sin that's, that's inconsistent with who we are in Christ. And, and putting on love and good deeds and service and, and obedience in all things. I think it's telling that, that Paul opens his letter here saying, Grace to you. And then he closes it in, in chapter 4 verse 23 saying, Grace be with you. Why? What's the difference? I think it's because he expects... God to be answering his prayer through this letter. Grace to you. Here is this letter to you from Jesus Christ. God's word through his servant, take it. Now grace be with you. That grace stay with you. 
This letter was to be a means, a, a tool, a, a conduit of God's grace into their lives. So as we work our way through this book, its purpose hasn't changed. Its purpose intended from the beginning by the Holy Spirit was not just to go to Philippi, but was to go to us here today. That we would grow in grace and flourish in health and maturity in our faith. We learn to live with gospel focus. That's what we want to see happen over the course of this Next year as we study Philippians. And let's not overlook, as we hope for that, the fact that this is a blessing. It's a, it's a prayer. It's a cry out to God. Give them grace, Lord. Grace to, to look to gospel authority. Grace to live in gospel identity. Grace to grow in gospel maturity. And, and if we want to see these things happening here among us, how's that going to happen? if not from God's hand. And so we start off this new ministry year. There's there's no better place to start than on our knees, church. Father, thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Thank you for your word, that we can trust it as your word. God, I pray you would help us to submit to it, to be refined and changed by it, God, that we would be a people and a church who live uh, eagerly looking to live under gospel authority, that we would define ourselves as servants of Christ Jesus, slaves of our God with joy in everything that we do. Lord, I pray that we would learn to live in this glorious gospel identity. Lord, forgive us for our consistent gospel amnesia as we again pick up our old ways and try to please you by our own efforts, try to, um, to earn our identity in you. Lord, help us to rest in what Christ has done, to see ourselves uh, through your eyes in Christ. God, that you would grow us in maturity, that we would be flourishing spiritually. Lord, we pray for your grace. God, we can't produce these things. This is so far beyond um, what we as elders, that what we as a church are able to do. These are the things that only you can do by your grace. So God, we come before you and we ask, build your church. Lord, we want to see lost people saved and saved people matured and matured people multiplied all to your glory and we're helpless to do it. So Father, we come to you at the beginning of this ministry year and we ask you, God, to pour out your grace again, that we would grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that you would be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name.